Welcome to the Seventh Art Cinema Podcast. My name is Pavan Mundi. I'm one of the producers of the Seventh Art, and I'm here with Christopher Hare. All right, how are you doing today, Chris? It's pretty hot. It's uh, 9:30 in the morning, and I'm pretty sure it's 35 degrees out, and you're drinking a hot coffee. Yeah, moment. we're in an air-conditioned apartment. Well, I'm covered in sweat. And uh, what do we have uh, on tap today, Chris? We've got our interview with two members of the Loop Collective, a collective of independent media artists that um, deal with experimental cinema. Right, and who did we talk to? Dan Brown and... Isabella Pruska Oldenhoff. And we're going way back uh, with this one, right? We recorded this probably, this interview, about a year and a half ago. This was our third profile for our video magazine. It's a section where we have slightly shorter interviews with um, interesting people within the industry, not always filmmakers. Although at that point, I think all three were. (laughs) What are your thoughts on this one? Well, I'm not in it, which is interesting, but because the conversation's so fluid and anecdotal uh, and they do a good job repeating the questions, I think it stands on its own as a little conversation between the two of them. We shot it at Ryerson, which is basically their home base. Um, We shot it in a classroom and it was just the two of us, right, that shot that one? Yeah, and it was a film editing classroom, so there's a bunch of 8mm film discarded on the floor. There's a Steenbeck editor, I think. Right, and Dan Brown had a short film out on the festival circuit recently, right? Yes, it's called uh, Memento Mori. Played at Rotterdam. Opened up uh, Mutech, a music festival in Montreal, uh, among many other accolades. Right, and what is uh, the Loop Collective's affiliation with Ryerson? They're not officially uh, affiliated with Ryerson, right? You don't have to be a Ryerson student to be a part of the collective? No, absolutely not. I think all it is is that's just kind of a home base uh, that they operate out of. And a few people uh, teach there or graduate students there. Uh, Ryerson, of course, is where famous uh, Canadian avant-garde filmmaker R. Bruce Elder operates out of as well, so that's an interesting crossover. Right, and there's, uh, I think, there's some good stories in this one. I, I recall something about uh, Allen Ginsberg. Isabella has a, a really interesting story about meeting Allen Ginsberg that opens up the, the podcast before they discuss, which at, at that point they were uh, releasing their first DVD, uh, which collected 15 years, spanned 15 years worth of uh, avant-garde films. All right, so before we get to it, uh, of course, you can watch the video version of this uh, podcast on our website, www.theseventhart.org. Seventh Art spelled out. Yeah, spelled out. And uh, I guess that's it. Enjoy. I think we should start with you. With me? <laughs> because I, it always starts with me, and I mean, the collective started with me, so I think it would be good to start with you. <laughs> I'm one of the founders, one of the co-founders, so it, it's... Are you getting yeah. this? <laughs> <laughs> I, I well, would like you to talk about see, it. See, I don't even have any notes or anything, so I can't even say... Uh, well, I guess... What year did it start? Okay, fine. See, it always bounces back to 98, right? That's why I'm so happy that this book is being written, and 
uh, there'll be some clarity and I can finally forget everything. Um, so it started in 1996 in the fall. It was actually a, just a group of students here at the School of Image Arts and uh, um, what it was is that we used to take courses with Bruce Elder. He would show us experimental films and we kind of fell in love with them and so one of our, um, one of the members, um, Jai Sarin, approached Bruce Elder and asked him, where can I see more of these works? And he says, well, they're not really being screened anywhere, so you would have to screen them yourself and you can start a group. So uh, Jai was in photography, I was in media arts, which I think in the 90s kind of became the new media. And the two other members, uh, Trevor Shaken and Jason Sadlowski, were also uh, new media. So actually, no film students <laughs> were at the beginning. So photography and uh, new me uh, and media students. And um, so we uh, we started hanging out and uh, you know attending uh, elders lectures, auditing them, and eventually. Um, there was uh, Allen Ginsberg's um, um, talk at, um, at the Convocation Hall at U of T. And that was in November. And I remember that all of us got tickets to go and see Allen Ginsberg read his poetry. And uh, Bruce Elder and his wife also attended. They were sitting at the front. We were in a balcony. And it was just a terrific experience to just see this great poet uh, read his uh, poetry and we knew that the filmmakers <clears throat> that we admired like uh, Brackage and Frampton and Snow and you know and specifically Brackage was very close to the um, to the poets and knew many of the beat poets so for us it brought us so much closer uh, to this uh, to this I don't know to this group well, of artists. So after the screening, there was a, a reception for Allen Ginsberg, and um, you know it, you had to had special tickets for that. And Bruce Elder had two tickets, and uh, he says, "Well, I'm too old. I'm not going to go with my wife. But you guys have two tickets, and be creative how you get all four of you into that space." And he says, "But in exchange, I want you to sign." I want Allen Ginsberg to sign this book of poems that I brought with me. And we said, fine, no problem, we'll figure it out. Of course, we figured out how to sneak each other in there. So, you know, we're enjoying this party, it's great. Uh, and being so close to uh, Ginsberg, and finally, towards the end of the evening, we said, oh, sh you know, we have this book, we have to do something. So there we go. Um, to uh, we kind of gesture to Jason Sadlowski, and it was this kind of very shy guy, and uh, he said, "Jason, you have to go and do it." So we send him off to <laughs> to get go and get uh, this book signed, and um, it's it was kind of a treat. Uh, what Alan said to him, well, you know, when young boys come to me to get uh, for me to sign the book. Uh, I, uh, you have to give me a kiss on the mouth. So, <laughs> poor Jason, you know, he was completely embarrassed to be, you know, uh, just for many reasons. So, anyways, he came back, rushed over with a kind of a kind of puzzle and smile and blushing, like <laughs> on his face, 
uh, and brought the book like a trophy. Uh, afterwards, we went out to uh, just to a pub and we were just talking about this. And it, it felt as if it was just this experience of the night, which kind of became uncanny for us. A kind of at that point, we decided, okay, we have to do something about it. So we decided at that point uh, that evening that starting in the new semester, which was in 1997, in January, which when we started our screenings. So we functioned as a, as a, you know, as a, as a group of students and we called ourselves the, uh, the experimental film group. Um, and um, at some point, I mean, uh, the history just keeps on going. I don't want to bore you with the details. But um, many of the members uh, have actually left the collective, and including all of the founding members. I'm the only one who remained, and I felt that this was something really special. And I knew what was important for me as a, as a filmmaker is to have a community where I can um, um, with like-minded people who can support me uh, and also uh, where I can see more of this work because I really believe that what uh, what really helps any artist and especially an emerging artist is the uh, is, is just the opportunity to see and be exposed to the the work and if you're a painter Wonderful, you can go to the museum or a gallery and you can see the great work. If you're a musician, you go to a concert and there is plenty of albums you can listen to. But of course, you can, one can argue that it's always better to be in a live concert and it's not the same. But with experimental film, you're kind of out of luck because a lot of the films are not easily available. Some of them are not even in a country. So it, it became um, kind of an issue for me how to continue fueling my uh, imagination and my colleagues. So it, uh, I, I knew that I had to continue, so I brought other people on. And um, it's just kind of continued to grow. And it's always kind of, its membership has always been very fluid. Um, some members kind of uh, are less active for a period and then they kind of step up. So we've been always, um, we've been kind of open to that. Um, I don't know, um, maybe you should jump in at this point. I've laid the course and you can continue. Well, <laughs> yeah, it's really interesting though. Yeah. <laughs> Put you on the spot. Uh, yeah, well, I mean, I, I guess I joined the collective in 2005, um, and uh, it was when we did the uh, Elemental Processes show with uh, with uh, Michael Snow and Alex Getty and Chris Walsby, and um, and that was uh, that was kind of a real just uh, random thing where uh, I think basically. Bruce asked me to help you guys set up the installation or something like that because you're all super busy and uh, you know I had some time and so forth so but I, I definitely had kind of a similar experience of, of taking a course with him in uh, 2004 and seeing um, all of these films for the first time seeing Len Lai, seeing Bruce Connor, Arthur Lipset, Brackage, <coughs> David Rimmer, um, Tons of other ones. Uh, he never showed uh, Hollis Frampton or Michael Snow, but I, I got to see them a little bit later on. So mm -hmm. it was kind of just a bit of a reveal, one at a time, uh, of these different works. And I, I when I had come to uh, to do my film degree at Ryerson, I had uh, 
been really inspired by uh, Norman McLaren and uh, and his films, and I just saw it as, as so shockingly different from what we were uh, being taught and what what a movie could be and the idea of painting on film and scratching on film. It didn't really seem as, as something realistic. Or uh, in the first year, we got shown wavelength, but it was you know kind of just this tortuous experience <coughs> that we were expected to somehow uh, sit through and. Uh, was, I, I'm really proud of the fact that I, uh, I really hated Wavelength in my first year, and then in the fourth year I, I was absolutely loved it and saw it again, and I was like, wow, I had no idea there was so much stuff in this film because it, there's, there's so much color and different movements and uh, all of these things, but um, at the time when I saw it in the first year, I, I wasn't prepared to, uh, to see all of those things, and I think... Um, I think that's really something that I've taken from this type of cinema is that it's actually helped me to see better. And uh, after seeing, you know, a dozen Brackage films where there's two or three superimpositions going on top of each other for uh, an extended period of time, and you actually are able to hold two or three images in your mind that are intercutting rapidly from the cosmos to cells to, you know, death to life to birth and all of these other things. Um, I would notice that uh, I'd be driving in a car or something and I'd notice how the light was reflecting not only outside the window but through the window and through the reflection of the window or I can remember one time um, playing with my brother in, uh, in a lake and he was splashing me with water and I was noticing how all of the splashes of water um, were uh, creating um, all these rainbows basically and um, it was kind of just something that I developed through uh, the more uh, I saw with these films was just uh, the ability to see, do you need that? You're, you're good? Yeah, uh, the ability to see more. So anyway, um, I took this class with Bruce and, and you know, it totally transformed uh, a lot of my ideas about what a good movie was, even what a movie was. And, uh, um, you know, seeing work like, uh, for example, Jack Chambers that's uh, imp impossible to uh, see uh, anywhere. I mean, there was, there was a crappy version on UbuWeb for a while, but it was just absolutely terrible quality and, uh, you know, really no point in watching it. And uh, also seeing work, too, that uh, was inherently medium-specific, where the, uh, the whole uh, point of the film was that you had to see it on a projected film, uh, that it needed to be projected onto a screen through a machine that was a mechanical contraption that spun through with these gears at a certain pace. And um, so leaving that course, I mean, my whole uh, aesthetic sensibility, you know, everything was just really switched around. So I, I wanted to uh, share that with people. And um, I... Uh, I was lucky enough to be asked by uh, Pierre Tremblay, who's another uh, faculty member here, to, uh, to help to shoot a documentary on Michael Snow, and so I got to meet him, and he was a real nice guy, and uh, you know, very, very humble person, uh, not somebody you'd think is, is one of the greatest living artists in, in the world, but nonetheless, there it is. And, um, and then we got to do the show, and uh, I went away for a while. I went to school in, in France, and it was when I was in France that I really realized how unique the North American avant-garde is in terms of its sensibility and how different uh, European cinema is in a lot of ways, and uh, how there is 
there's definitely avant-garde uh, European cinema, but it, it comes from a very different perspective, I think. And um, that's not to demean it at all, but it just it made me realize that uh, that, that my sensibilities were uh, very strongly linked to uh, this community. And so um, when I came back to Canada, I was really, uh, you know, looking at it with a newfound appreciation that you can really only get after you've been away and uh, decided that I wanted to show other people these films, like Isabella was saying, and so I, I started organizing, um, at first just screenings in my uh, apartment. Uh, there was a series called Free Radicals that I did for a mm -hmm. while with uh, visual music films, and we showed Brackage, and we showed uh, Dog Star Man, and uh, um, a few other ones, and then there was a, a selection of films by uh, Joyce Wheeland and, and Hollis Frampton, and then we rescreened it here at Ryerson, and that was sort of the first uh, Lighthouse series. Um, that has now gone on for the past, I guess, five years. Mm -hmm. And so we did that at Ryerson for about four years or so. And we would generally just show, um, you know, because again, these films are really hard to come by and they cost a lot of money to rent too, even from the CFFDC or you can get some of them from the library. But what we would do is, is uh, we'd have it the same night as Isabella's class. And so we'd basically just rescreen the syllabus from her class, um, which is great because I think, um, you know, it's, it's, it's just kind of a, a matter of fact that unfortunately or fortunately, um, you know, because of the uh, the horrors of the uh, political economy of culture, shall we say, uh, these films don't thrive in the in the amongst the general public, and and academia has kind of been this uh, walled garden where it can flourish in some ways. And so, uh, but that that's that's problematic because I mean, only so many people get into these schools, uh, and. You want, you know, like we said, this is poetry, right? And it's yeah. almost as if you're you're saying to somebody, okay, you can appreciate this poem, but only for these minutes right now, and then we're going to take it away and lock it up in a vault, and you're not going to see it again for another five years. I mean, can you expect to, uh, you know, read Ezra Pound's Cantos that way? Like, you know, he nobody would know who he is, right? Well, and I think another aspect of this is that um, the film festivals are not really committed to seeing historical work. So, and I mean, everybody knows that the, the shelf life of film is two years in the festival circuit. So anything um, that's older than that will not play, and unless there is a retrospective of one of the filmmakers. So, I mean, again, if you're just starting out or, um, you know, or even have been making films for a while and want to see some of the early works, the history of it, and see the historical trajectory, it's, it's impossible to, to, to actually see that. Uh, again, as I said, you know, you go to a museum and you can see painting, you can see sculpture, but with cinema, and especially experimental cinema, there just, just wasn't really um, kind of uh, a venue for that, an outlet for it. So um, that's why a lot of our programs have always been uh, kind of a mixture of historical with contemporary. And what we were interested in doing is actually showing the kind of the um, similarities or um, bit, not even similarities, but the kind of working and reworking of similar themes 
themes and how they have been playing out, you know, 50 years ago or, you know, uh, even at the turn of last century, um, maybe not so much turn, but like in the 20s, and how they have come to be um, thought of uh, and worked through um, in, you know, in the 21st century. And uh, by you know some of the the makers in the collective or other artists from uh, around, and um, in addition to that, in addition to this kind of um, kind of movement between history and the present, uh, what we have also done, uh, and I think that was part of the reason why the arts councils became interested in us um, when. We started to move between the disciplines and in order to situate experimental cinema you cannot it's difficult just to situate it solely in film because many of its makers often started out either in music in poetry in dance in painting right I mean Jack Chambers is a perfect example of that and there is actually a great exhibition of his work right now and just to actually see that um, this is a point in case right so that's why uh, we started actually moving in that direction to actually present uh, these kind of multidisciplinary events that would help contextualize the films. Um, and also we were hoping that, well, artists working in other fields should come and look at these works uh, and see them as an extension of their own. And uh, we also thought it would be great to actually start a dialogue um, just between the different communities. Because it is quite surprising that in a city uh, like Toronto, the art communities are very separate. You've got, you know, the community of, of, of poets that will is completely unaware of, for example, experimental cinema, and yet the sensibilities are so similar. So, you know, I, it's, this was kind of our way of trying to straddle these worlds. Um, and in the course of that, some of the members who have joined um, actually um, were either composers or dancers. And uh, so that actually um, kind of expanded our, um, I guess, the scope of, um, our, of our interest and also kind of reflection all on the programs we should be showing. And it's been great um, also learning um, place in terms of, you know, um, drawing inspiration, uh, for example, from compositions uh, of music by uh, a member of the collective and bringing those to come to bear on the composition of film. And I, I think that um, collaborations within a collective, um, you know, certainly have happened too. So, you know, um, that's how we function as a collective in, in, a, in a sense. Um, that we don't have any rules, and it's all of us are friends. That's that's another thing. I think that's what really binds us. It's not like you signed a contract and you become a collective member. It's more kind of you're uh, having similar interests and passions and thinking along the same uh, lines. And yeah. Well, I suppose film is um, uh, a unique medium in that sense, and that it it is. It kind of invites us interdisciplinarity uh, to some degree. It's um, it's a medium that um, encompasses the other arts by and large. It encompasses music. It encompasses painting. It encompasses 
poetry, sculpture, dance, um, anything else you can throw at it um, in some way can be uh, reflected within the cinema um, through its temporality and through um, the way that it uh, um, treats space. Um, so to that degree, um, it kind of uh, naturally invites uh, other makers and um, I mean that's, that's something that uh, the whole history of cinema is just littered with, you know, from Méliès who was a, a stage magician to, um, you know, pretty much every other uh, great artist in the cinema. Um, you know, I think it's, it, it kind of comes into more maybe the contemporary time when you see uh, directors who wanted to be directors become directors. But uh, more often than not, I think that uh, the most interesting work is, uh, comes from other places and uh, people who just kind of accidentally happen upon it and um, are maybe concerned with some other aesthetic problem or um, concern and uh, end up turning towards uh, film or video as, uh, as an answer to that, as a way to uh, investigate that further. Um, because it's, uh, it's really a, quite a novel language, uh, in, by and large. It's, it's, um, it's, it's a language of images that exists in time. Uh, and, uh, you know, most people uh, understand, you know, I say, I'm, well, I'm a filmmaker, and they say, oh, well, do you write? Do you direct? Do you act? And I say, well, actually, I make movies with a camera and cutting shots together. And I, I don't consider myself a director in terms of directing reality. I just photograph what I see. I, I don't write anything down beforehand because I don't see that as intrinsic to the process. Um, you know, I, I work with people, but if anything, I, I want them not to act. I want them to be as they are. Uh, sometimes, I mean, sometimes I, I have human figures in my film, sometimes it's just water or trees for however long the role that I happen to have is, uh, or memory card or, or what have you. Um, but by and large, people understand movies as this kind of treatment of theater, or of books, and um, so in that sense, I think that's a, a kind of an imposed interdisciplinarity that uh, is a false one. Uh, that, that people only understand it through a certain way where you have to adapt a movie or a video game or, or something like that and you have to have a certain narrative arc. Um, and it doesn't really approach the way uh, film can operate as a new language. I mean, it's, it's only been around for a century. And I mean, think about all the other art forms. They've been around for how long? Well, Millennia? Photography is a relatively new one, uh, and photography too is, I, I think, a part of this this kind of new language. Mm -hmm. But photography over time is is a really uh, fantastic equation, and um, it's it's really just begun, uh, and it's 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 so interesting where we're at now because, um, I mean. It's almost like it's just begun, but there's a question of whether or not it'll, it'll even continue as it is or, or what it will become. And uh, that's a question a lot of, I think, the, some of the more pertinent uh, people thinking about what this medium is or can be um, have asked. Um, and 
it's, it's really something that I think it's best approached by not assuming that, um, that there is uh, a specific language that's correct or not correct. I mean, so many of the, these great filmmakers that we've been, we've been talking about and that we're passionate about uh, presenting and kind of you know, carrying on the, uh, the torture tradition of, of uh, their work and, and, and showing it so that there can be a community, so that the community can continue with a sense of history because you can't just have a community in the present tense, you have to have a community that exists through time. And so um, experimental filmmakers are constantly reinventing the wheel because they don't have a sense of that temporal continuity of a, of a community. But um, it's a bit of a run-on sentence there. I've, I've lost my train of thought. but. Um, it's all right, you can, you can put a cut in there. The point being <laughs> that um, uh, it's such a new language that uh, uh, people are still really figuring out all of these, uh, these forms of grammar and, and ways of speaking and ways of relating things that it's, it's, it's natural to, uh, to take an interdisciplinary approach and to throw at film uh, from whatever perspective you can. Um, whether it be uh, to look at film as, as, a, as a mode of painting, moving painting, to look at it as a mode of uh, documenting a certain segment of space-time where a performance can unfold, uh, as a lot of uh, dance pieces uh, uh, are sometimes translated into film. Um, the, there's, a, there's an interesting middle ground there where because of its properties to uh, fold time and space together. Uh, you can you can get these new configurations of matter. Um, there's the whole uh, aspect of uh, mimesis in film, where uh, how it imitates reality. It it, uh, it allows us to uh, to see more of it um, and to kind of expand and contract and to really isolate certain uh, characteristics of it. So um, in that sense, it's. Uh, it's something that I think people are, are maybe more open-minded about now maybe than ever, but um, I mean you could really argue it either way. I, I think um, just even in the last 10 years, uh, a format like the music video has become so uh, much more commonplace uh, so that people now are, are willing to sit and watch uh, a 30-second short film under the guise of an advertisement or a music video and go, oh, okay, this is a piece of visual music. There's no story here. There's no narrative. It's just really expressive shots. And, um, you know, I'm, I'm meant to kind of groove on the aesthetic nature of it. Um, and it, it, that's what it's imparting to me. Um, so in a sense, people are more open with, uh, with, with the internet. Uh, in another sense, um, I don't know, maybe they're not. Uh, it's, it's hard to say, but um, I feel like, uh, n at least with the internet, it's now possible for people to see that type of personal film, um, a film that's made by just one person. Uh, which isn't made by a committee or a corporation or an industry, that it's, it's just made by somebody out of uh, craft um, because they love the thing that they're discussing and they want to discuss it. Uh, and I mean, you know, for all of the um, problems with the 15-minute uh, world of, uh, or more like, 30-second or three-minute world of YouTube. Um, 
it's, it's, it's really great to have that aspect of the distribution in the hands of uh, the people who are making it. It's interesting because as you were talking about the film medium, all I kept on thinking about is McLuhan's idea of how every new, the, the content of every media is the, uh, the previous, the old medium. So for uh, film was book became the content of film. So it's interesting that you're talking about the internet and this kind of, um, and uh, that environment which even McLuhan talks about as being, we are elec through electricity, everybody is kind of connected, right? Through this movement of information. So it implies this immersive environment. So if we take that idea, as again, kind of repeating that content of any medium is the previous medium. So we can say that truly the content of film should be immersion, right? That would be then. So we are, I feel like finally starting to come to terms what film should be. And is that sensory experience in space and time. And, um, and as you're saying that, you know, we can, um, people are more likely right now to watch films that are um, that don't have actors in them and kind of experience them um, kind of as visual music because of their exposure to advertisements and music video which by the way I should say oftentimes uh, have relied on um, the uh, various experiments of artists working within the tradition of experimental cinema there is and many of them actually have supported themselves by doing this kind of work uh, you know, so that they can continue and uh, and making their uh, their films that would work in the in advertisements and also doing special effects in cinema. So, so perhaps we are coming to a time where there will be that cinema as it is approaching its death, if you will, with the coda constantly pronouncing its own bankruptcy <laughs> and labs just you know, shutting down and, I mean, I just found out that uh, Technicolor will be stopping uh, processing of uh, its motion picture here in a couple of months. Uh, its Toronto location, Deluxe, already stopped. So we only have pretty much one functional lab over here uh, in the city. They stopped DVD production as well. We were, so, we were making a loop DVD and I, I waited six months to uh, do the authoring and now they no longer offer it at, at uh, Technicolor Toronto. They have to send it to Montreal. <laughs> <laughs> Might have to do it on film. Yeah. <laughs> We'll see. But it, it's interesting, uh, you know, when you when you think about uh, towards the uh, 1800s and the Impressionists and how they looked at, you know, with the invention of photography, they had to go in a different direction. The painters couldn't really, nor did they probably want to compete with photography, with realism. Many of them wanted to move beyond it. And so just as photography has liberated the painting medium, right? There's something to be said about the internet and the electric media liberating film. Um, but the problem has always been that film is always thought of as a, as a technology and not an artist medium. And I think this is where we are kind of, where experimental cinema in particular has always suffered. I always see it as a stepchild of um, as a stepchild of, uh, you know, commercial cinema and an orphan of other fine arts. You know, um, 
um, to be quite honest, you know, it's, it's, it's amazing to see that places like the National Gallery of Canada and the Art Gallery of Toronto uh, do not have a position uh, there for a curator who solely focuses on, um, you know, putting together programs of films uh, by artists experimental films um, as part of the uh, the media that should be presented. It's part, especially contemporary museums. They have uh, certainly um, curators of photography. They have uh, installation, painting. So it's one, you know, one has to kind of question that. So in some ways, I, I think that its 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 struggle has always been that of of being bound by technology and then being dependent on uh, on factories and a kind of you know mass production of the materials of the chemicals and um, and um, because, I mean, let's face it, making your own uh, emulsions. Some artists are attempting to do it right now, but um, <laughs> I, I, I wouldn't. So we are always dependent on that external um, sources. And at the same time, when we think about painters, well, they've continued with their oils, which also rely on factories of making those paints and acrylics. and. So I'm hoping that there will be a space for that, but I'm hoping at the same time that, you know, major Canadian institutions like the AGO, like the National Gallery, will actually step in and will help, will work together with other, uh, you know, with cinematechs, with universities. Um, and with independent filmmakers to make sure that the history, uh, there's a whole century, even of Canadian cinema, one can say, um, I mean, at least a, a good 60, 70 years of great Canadian uh, experimental cinema, that should be saved, even preserved. And everybody is just tossing up their hands and allowing it to, to rot away, and, uh, and those, that medium lives and you have to have a way of preserving it and making sure that it continues. Um, so how have things changed since we first started in terms of films in relation to other fine arts? On one hand, I think that there is a certain openness and acceptance just from a kind of you know, ideational point of view. At the same time, from a practical perspective, nobody is willing to step in. Uh, and really, truly trying to help and come on board with it. And I think the situation right now is really dire. And I don't want to sound like this, but, you know, I... It is right now. It's, it's really, really tough. And I'm, you know, every time I go and I teach students film, and I teach them how, how to actually work with 60 millimeter, and I show them experimental films, you know, I can't really guarantee them that in the next two, three years, they'll be able to continue. And yet, you know, it's, that should not be the case, you know? And I'm not a film purist, all I, but I, 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 I'm a but I'm a firm supporter that artists uh, should be allowed to, and given the materials to work with, um, that, that they need. And there are certain artists who work extremely well with that particular medium. And 
they should not be, you know, just prevented from, you know, from not being able to continue. And, you know, it's just like telling a, a violin player, you know, I'm sorry, we won't make violins, you have to now play a bassoon. It's absurd, you know. Or here's a MIDI keyboard. Exactly. <laughs> so, you know, I, I think that's that's really necessary, but even more so, I'm just thinking about about just the heritage and the history, too, that, you know, that we need to continue preserve and making sure that our future generations, uh, future children, will have actually exposure and um, to these works. It's interesting so. too because I mean, as an archival medium, film still beats digital. Mm. Uh, video work from the '80s uh, have to be constantly migrated onto new formats. Uh, there's no stable format of video that exists. Period. Um, you can have stuff on a hard drive now, but that hard drive is only so stable as the hard drive is, and hard drives fail after a few years. So if, you, um, if you're an archivist, what a lot of archivists do, they'll kind of have this, this crazy proposition where the data will be constantly migrated through different drives, and some of the drives will be placed in deep cold storage, and other ones will be on tape and it'll be on a drive, but um, with a lot of the video work that was made in the 80s, uh, an archival version of that work uh, is often, well at least with some work, uh, shot onto 35mm. Uh, and that's because film, you know, yes it's true, a lot of the stocks and film that was shot in the 70s are now disgustingly red and it, you know it's it's a real tragedy that um, you know for example the films of Jordan Belson some of them have mm. been lost he recently passed away and some of his films are just irrecoverably red and uh, you know very beautiful color-based films that you know just gone now you know or early you know back to early Melies, you know, he lost, uh, you know, probably over half his movies uh, through one way or another, you know, it was all made from silver nitrate, so it was explosive mm. anyway. Um, you know, so it's not, it's not the most stable medium, but it remains that, uh, you know, a 16 millimeter or 35 millimeter uh, black and white negative uh, with the, the silver halide crystals and so forth, that's, that's going to be a negative that's stable for, you know, archivally tested at least a century. Um, so in a way, it's uh, it it is a. I think there's there's something there in in the in the temporal aspect of it that maybe people today in their in their rush towards whatever the new format is and whatever the new technology is and oh we've got to throw out this whole <laughs> bank of computers and buy a new bunch of gear. Um, people are losing that. I mean, people look at my. Bolex when I carry it out and they go, oh wow, it's an antique, eh? Does that thing still work? And I say, yeah, it runs perfectly fine and it, it was made over 50 years ago and you know what? It doesn't even use batteries. I just wind <laughs> it up and it plays and I have no other camera that will work that well in another 50 years and I bet you the Bolex will still be working. But my Canon 5D Mark II or my PowerShot is probably going to be in the landfill by then. And 
something according, oh, I read some crazy fact where it was something like the weight of, I don't know if it was 10,000 elements or elephants or 40,000 elephants, but just in Quebec alone per year uh, goes into landfill in terms of, of uh, computer electronics uh, mm. equipment and digital cameras and cell phone cameras and so these things last a couple of years and then get thrown out and uh, you know the Bolex or a Beaulieu or uh, what have you um, you know it's, it still works and it's, it's going to be working without without a battery um, you know as long as they keep printing you know stock for the bloody thing. And as long as they're actually the knowledge about how to how print to and make is preserved and all of that is being passed on orally. It's just it's and that's another aspect of this is many of the people, timers and other um, technicians, a lot of technicians have been passing away. And with them that knowledge, which is not really recorded, but it, you would really apprentice with somebody like that over years and you would become a timer. All of that is disappearing. Those so how do you are crazy people and uh, nobody you know only crazy people follow crazy people and so you know you get you get one person in a, in a dingy lab processing film for uh, you know a whole continent of people which is the case with um, you know the people working at Niagara Custom Labs in Toronto which is now the only uh, place that prints positive 16 millimeter in uh, a large section of North America and and I mean he also has to make sure that the city of Toronto does not change the zoning that he is not forced to right he's, he's not, not forced evicted. out you know so I mean all these issues are constantly kind of uh, encroaching on you and you know at the same time, we are living in a culture of progress. And you see this, you know, universities used to be places that where there was this certain um, uh, space so you can question the political system, even the institution itself. And it seems that universities have become complicit uh, with the corporations and with this thrust towards progress, not questioning even. Uh, its implications. And so we live in this culture of progress and completely have uh, no regard for history. And I think, you know, for me this becomes clear just by seeing um, what has presently been the, 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 the approach of major museums and galleries in Canada towards uh, the, uh, the films made by its uh, filmmakers, by its artist filmmakers that they're not acquired, they're not interested about writing about them, right? They'll write about paintings, they'll write about other work, but that's another aspect of it. Unless a film is written about, for whatever reason, it really also disappears. So there needs to be a dialogue. Uh, and, you know, I think it's really the role of universities and other institutions to step in and do that. But, you know, so there we have this little collective. <laughs> so that's we started writing about uh, some of the artists we're showing because we felt that just even my own experience, I'm teaching experimental films, and some of them are extremely difficult. And unless there's something written on the film, it's difficult to get into them. Like Hollis Frampton is extremely difficult. I mean, the Magellan, you know, cycle is, is it will beat you up. So you need some kind of a way in, sure. you know? And um, I was beaten up in one of my lectures by Frampton, <laughs> I mean, by his films. So, uh, 
So Not by the audience? No, <laughs> the students were very good. They helped me, but you know, that they're difficult works yeah. and they need that voice. And unless something is written, again, it will not continue. But so how can we do it? How can we cannot text these things? And it seems that right now people don't even have attention to, yeah. <laughs> to focus and read books. It's they something just that takes more than 160 yeah. characters. Yeah. Anyways. <laughs> Maybe we should switch to a, a higher note rather than this groom one. <laughs> well, I mean, just on the just to kind of maybe sum up with the inter interdisciplinarity thing. I mean, I, I guess the the argument that we're we're saying or, or what it's worth mentioning about interdisciplinary is that film, yeah, the type of film that we're we're we we do um, is interdisciplinary to the point where it can fall between the cracks and. Um, you know, you can look at a history of art that will completely uh, not mention uh, this type of film, and you can look at a history mm. of cinema that will also similarly not mention at all this type of film. Um, so, so who talks about it? It's it's not it's not a profitable uh, enterprise. Uh, that much I can tell you. It's, it's not well, a perfect example is in uh, on March 9th and 10th, we're bringing in uh, Amy Greenfield. And she has kind of slipped in between the cracks of dance, the history of dance and performance and cinema. And so she's doing a Kodak lecture uh, here at Ryerson and then on the 10th we are screening uh, several of her uh, films at uh, the Jackman Hall at the AGO. And uh, you know, the first book on her that's coming out, her husband wrote it, it's just coming out right now. There's hardly anything written on her. And she is uh, kind of a, an innovator uh, of the tradition of scene dance or video dance uh, more specifically. And it's interesting how her work and her terrific understanding of collaboration between you know, the filmmaker, I mean, the, the camera person and her as a filmmaker, but performing. So this kind of collaborative work, but also her understanding of space and time and how she approaches them from a perspective of a performer um, and is able to represent that in her films in a very different way than somebody who comes from a very different background, uh, for example, for music into experimental film, like Paul Sheritz. Um, that it's, it's just amazing that these people, uh, you know, nobody seems to be interested in actually speaking uh, more about them or write about them, you know. Uh, I don't know, I, I hate to say this, but I remember Stan Brakhage was very young when he uh, wrote in defense of the, um, not in defense of the amateur, but make space for an artist. And, you know, he was saying, like, pay attention to the artists while they're young, pay attention to them, right? But Fabrakic was also, not until he was quite old and after his struggles with cancer, that he actually started bringing a lot of audiences in and he was started receiving support and, you know, the, the first book was written on him by Bruce Elder. Um, you know, and, and here is somebody of the, uh, of the magnitude, I would say, of Picasso, you know, who is just simply disregarded, you know, and, and struggled all against because he doesn't quite, he doesn't quite fit, right? So, but I guess those are the choices we make. <laughs> yeah, it's interesting, too. I mean, his work has kind of been 
popularized recently by that text of light group, but uh, even in that context, mm. it's it becomes interdisciplinary in a way which takes it away from what he was really kind of intending to do with the medium, which is that you know these films aren't meant to be watched with music; they're meant to be silent. Um, so it's hard, you know. It's it's really tough to sit and watch a, a, a ninety-minute film and just sit there in silence. You know, it's it's not a popular enterprise. Although, you know, more and more people are doing things like vipassana meditation. So who knows? Maybe it'll 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 become more popular. But um, text of light is beautiful, yeah. and I, I can sit in there in silence and watch yeah. the movement of light. It, it, you become a child, and you become mesmerized by the yeah. beauty of the of this simple movement. But it's, it's a challenging experience at the same time yeah. and you have to be ready to open yourself to it and I think that that is a, a, a different conception of art than most people hold nowadays. Mm -hmm. We tend to look at art as something, what's that going to give to me as opposed to what can I give to it? Like how can I uh, kind of like come towards the work open and ready to receive it? Uh, you know what? What can it give to me it, it, that's not in in kind of this instrumental, just utilitarian pleasure, which is short, but something which is maybe more lasting and, and deep um, that requires uh, um, you know a certain degree of, of uh, patience, patience and openness. And well, first of all. All of our screenings are kind of retrospectives, it seems like, uh, well, in some way. <laughs> no. At least the loop screenings. You know, most of our members have never even seen their own works together in a, in a program. So being able to actually reflect and see how, they're, how they have evolved as makers. You know, it's interesting because Jonas Mikas, when he, just before even he started anthology, or maybe as he started anthology, he used to, he would just show, uh, he would have um, film programs where he would focus on one filmmaker. So Brackett would bring all of his films that he would just bring down from the mountains and throw them, thread them on a projector. And there is something to be said about being exposed for a prolonged period of time to a work by one artist. But also for the maker to be able to see the certain, you know, um, certain themes that keep on coming up, or, or, and especially if you're working in short format, which many of us are, except for Dan, who is now working <laughs> on an epic. Um, so I, I f well, it was kind of my suggestion to one of the members who's kind of coordinating this, and I said, you know, what really needs to happen, the, not only the members should have the opportunity to see their own work, uh, you know, uh, together, but also, this will help others kind of make sense of it and see this, see how this artist has developed. And um, so that's pretty much how we. Uh, so it's the program is organized uh, based on the a combination of present and previous or historical members. And the present members are um, their work is going to be screened um, kind of. Uh, more in a retrospective style, where they can you can see um, a longer program of the work, and there will be just one program of works by the previous members. But interestingly, it's it's nice to actually see that there are certain um, 
themes that keep on being repeated by its members. What especially struck me is one of the early members, Kara Blake, uh, in one of the films that she made titled Typo, was using letter set on a film strip. So you have these letters kind of surfacing and disappearing, and she painted on top of this. And she, Kelly Egan works with, uh, often with text. She started working with letters, but now they don't make it. Um, but so she would glue newspaper and um, st sticker with, uh, stickers with, um, um, clear stickers with print on them, letters. So it was interesting for me to see that these members who have never met are working with similar interests. So there are constantly been this kind of reoccurring themes that come through that. So I don't know, maybe it's just me being selfish, I wanted to see <laughs> how all of these works. And, and I think it makes sense to have uh, a screening where uh, people actually have the exposure and see to how these works have kind of come, well, how these artists have evolved. I don't think you're being selfish. I mean, I feel like we pretty much just gave carte blanche to everybody yeah. when we do a screening generally. I mean, when we did our, uh, our uh, we did a screening at the free screen uh, at uh, the Tiff Bell Lightbox Cinematheque for uh, their last program and um, that was in uh, in November, and we pretty much just just uh, you know all of the kind of functional members in the collective. We said, okay, what do you what do you want to screen? And then we kind of put them all together and find an order, and uh, away we go. And uh, we've been kind of doing screenings like that, I guess, pretty much since I've been working of with the members. collective of of our members' yeah. screenings. And um, it's interesting because I think it just speaks to how what our, our our strengths are and that kind of bond us and and unite us in terms of what our interests are because we'll, we'll have a screening like that, say, and uh, I can remember we did one at the Lighthouse series a couple mm -hmm. years ago where we had um, your film and then my film and they both had very similar kind of imagery of yours was multi-layered but involving a lot of this kind of water light refraction and then yeah. mine was just entirely that. And then uh, between um, even between Tyler like, and Tyler Erica's and Erica, they, they they both had these triangles uh, in, in their films, uh, Paracutin and Spiders in Eden. Uh, both really prominently feature these triangles, and Paracutin was shown at the beginning, and Spiders in Eden was shown at the end. I had no idea they both had these triangles in there. Really prominent, just like pfft, triangles at some point. It's yeah. like watching the film. It was kind of just this kind of wow moment where it was like, geez, this. <laughs> It was almost like we planned that, you know. Um, and uh, and even at the when we did our first retrospective screening in, in 2007, I, I think we showed uh, one of Erica's films and a couple of mine that had a, a festival and then yeah. water and water and then a festival and it was, you know, I mean there are there are really similar themes that I think we kind of all experimental filmmakers harp on, like the body and water are pretty much the Not two all. and light. Well, I mean. Yeah, you're you're right. Not all, but uh, those are those are two definitely key ones. And then material, just material based stuff, is another but, very prominent one. But we've never really had a retrospective. We had group screenings. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. I and, guess. Yeah. And that actually started. Was it? I think was Sol Nagler who uh, decided he wanted to. Uh, who's actually one of the programmers at Windex Festival in uh, in Winnipeg. It's a it's a it's a very good uh, experimental film and video uh, festival, and uh, he decided, okay, 
we've got two great collectives in Canada. We have Double Negative and Loop Collective. I want to put those works together into a program. And this is kind of when I first saw it. And I thought, geez, you know, there's something to it. And because before, we, we were kind of actually hesitant even to show our own works, but then we felt like, okay, but we are makers, and we screen these films by other makers, and, you know, but we keep on making our, our work, and, you know, we don't, we, we do these screenings purely on a volunteer basis. Nobody has ever gotten paid for any of this. Um, so we're like, well, let's see our work. So that's kind of how we started doing these group screenings, the collective screenings. Mm -hmm. um, and so this is really special because you'll be able to see quite a few of dance films. And so it'll be, it's, it'll be good in that sense because I, I, I really, I've kind of started to come to believe that it's really important to see the whole body of work by a filmmaker to really truly understand and kind of get a sense of where this work, how this work uh, emerges. Obviously you also want to do a very close uh, um, you know, analysis of a particular film, but it, it's always great to have the broader uh, view. And this way, this also provides you with a context of the other members. So. I don't even um, kind of promote my films probably as much as I should, but I find, you know, you try and show your film in a festival or something and it gets put in this group show where it's just, you know, like I was, I was recently um, on the selection committee for uh, uh, student works in, in a, a, a local festival and it's just, it's really amazing how difficult it is to program in that environment because you need stuff that's really concise, that's really short, that's really snappy, that blends well together. And um, you know, when I make a work, I'm not necessarily concerned with that. I'm, I'm concerned with whatever issue that I'm working with and it's usually in, you know, very personal and um, you know, as a result, I, I, my films a lot of the time just kind of end up sitting on my shelf until we have one of our screenings and then I'm like, okay, time to dust this one off and, uh, and see if it's, uh, if it's a, a movie or something. And you know, a lot of the works will just kind of sit there, of stuff that I make at least, I'm, I might be totally unique in this, I'm not sure, but um, I'll shoot something and it'll just kind of sit on a shelf for a few years and then I'll go back to it a while later and be like, oh yeah, this is a movie. This is, this is actually quite good. I, I didn't realize. I, I thought it wasn't uh, exposed properly or something. And, and so I'll end up with these kind of movies that are, are almost mistakes or accidents um, where it'll take me a while to appreciate mm. the thing it is that got made. Um, and um, so it's, it's great to have the chance to, to be able to do that kind of work. And I think, you know, by and large, the reason why I'm interested as, as a programmer is to kind of be able to create that space, not only for myself, but for other artists that I really respect. And so um, with the Lighthouse series that we did this past year, um, it was really focused on, on um, giving that respect to the artists that we were presenting. Uh, we started off by screening uh, Stan Brackage's uh, Van yeah, Vancouver Island quartet or series. It used to be a trilogy, now it's a quartet. But, um, and we had Bruce Elder introduce it. And one of the things that he brought up is that when Brackage finished it and he made Panels for the Walls of Heaven, which is the last piece, 
he said, you know, this would be a quartet, but I don't think anybody would ever show all of these works together. It's, it's so long. How long are they? It's oh, four hours or no, so? No, no, it's not. It's, it's maybe three hours in total, but it's, it's a long screening, three hours of silent films. And, uh, you know, we had 25 people stay there right to the end, which was amazing. But, but some complained and they said if it was an hour short, it would be perfect. Perfect for what? It's like you want to well, see the you, whole body of work. And that's I the mean, thing, too, is that nobody's forcing you to sit there. Yeah. I mean, if you want to get up and leave, get up and leave. I mean, for me, it was just like I was programming the films because I hadn't seen those works, and I really wanted to see them, and I really respect Brackage, and so I wanted to give him the space to, you know, cast his spell on me. And so, you know, three hours, it doesn't bother me as long as the guy is okay with projecting it. Martin Heath had sent a cycle, which he was. And, you know, we were all happy to sit there and enjoy it. So, and then uh, likewise for the uh, the double negative screening that we did, I just approached Daichi Sato and said, um, look, uh, we want to just show whatever you guys have got. Yeah. You know, you're, you're a, a similar collective to us that exists in Montreal, double negative. They also do screenings and they also do collaborations. And uh, we just said, just, you know, come up with a program that works for you. And, um, you know, it can be as long as you want and uh, including a, a performance after Aspect, which was really incredible. It was mm -hmm. really fantastic performance um, uh, by a group. Yeah, uh, Jerusalem mm -hmm. in my heart, uh, of my heart, yeah. I believe. Um, and then uh, we had a dance program that uh, one of our, our, our members uh, uh, put together. And then um, the last program was Carl uh, uh, Brown, uh, who um, is, is, a, is, is wonderful example of just representing what we've been talking about with um, how uh, marginalized uh, this mm. type of cinema is. Carl Brown is, is one of the uh, worldly masters of the type of cinema that he creates. He, yeah. he, um, he does hand processing unlike any other uh, filmmaker in the world living and yet nobody in Canada knows who he is. And uh, he goes and he tours France of his films. He's had his films shown in the Louvre. He, Tours the south of France and his cinema. The cinemas are packed um, to see his films, even though they they don't know who he is. But yeah. uh, increasingly they do um, because he's been touring more and more. Um, but yeah, nobody in Toronto is showing his work, um, so you know we just needed to show it. Uh, you know the film that we showed, Memory Fade. Uh, he finished in two thousand and nine, and it hadn't been screened in Toronto. We, no. we premiered it. Um, so, uh, in part, I want to give space to myself and the other people in the collective to do these screenings and to just say, well, you know, I'm not going to impose my will necessarily on this, but let's see, you know, let's kind of just gather all of the things that uh, we feel will need, you know, are the conditions that we need for our work to thrive and yeah. what we're interested in, and we'll see how that can kind of flourish together. Well, but I think another aspect of this is that because there is no board of directors and because we don't have anybody breathing down our neck, we, and because we do it voluntarily, um, it, th th we've always screened the, the works that we wanted to see. We're never really thinking so much about the audience. I mean, it's a bit of Canadian content for for grants, but <laughs> well, but there's lots of great Canadian artists. Yeah, so that's but true. but the, the the point is that whether you know, am I concerned that my audience member you know might not be comfortable sitting for three hours and watching a Stan Brackage film? No, sorry, you know, I was I, a bit I'm nervous not. about that, but 
at the it's same okay, token. Okay, you came around. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it was Stena and Woody Vasulka started the kitchen, you know, and this was a space. It used to actually be an actual kitchen. That's the kitchen in New York. And they said, you know, we're not doing it for the audience. This is, if they want to come and stay, great. But this is a space for artists to come and try out their experiments in electronic media. And I feel like we've kind of been doing the same thing because, you know, unlike festivals and um, that have that expiry date on them and that have to make, uh, you know, programs that are nice and pleasing so that the uh, theaters will fill up with audiences, uh, because they have to respond then to the councils and to uh, the board, uh, board of directors and I mean, that whole infrastructure, it just doesn't exist here. We're doing this because we love it and we want to see it and, you know, f to help us grow. And in that same sense, I feel that that's what kind of started the collective, too, because we wanted to see these works that weren't being played. And uh, to be honest with you, I kind of like torturing the audience and seeing how far we can push them. But I think it's good. It's good for them. <laughs> I'm sorry. It's true. Watching three and a half hours of Brackage's, uh, the Vancouver Island uh, Quartet, I mean, every single shot is magnificent. I have never seen so many different variations of uh, water and uh, sea foam. It's just incredible, you know, and I'm not just saying that, but at the end of it, I mean, I was like, how many different ways can you shoot water foam? You know, the sea foam, it's, it's just incredible. And yet he could, and you know, and it's, again, still amazing that, uh, you know, so many people are, s he's not always taught in the university uh, curricula, especially in film studies, I mean, if you happen to be lucky to have a professor who actually writes on it and makes it, then great. But, you know, can you imagine there are people who go through a film program and never been exposed to Brackage? It's like studying on history and never being exposed to Picasso or, you know, or Jackson Pollock. I mean, it just makes no sense. So, anyways. The DVD was a great opportunity uh, that we uh, kind of... Uh, stumbled into where we got lucky enough to uh, come across the idea of doing it and um, successful with uh, um, securing some funds to do so and um, so it, it just it's such a it's such a difficult issue um, you know amongst um, some people who uh, for example work on film and um, want their work to be shown but they don't want the digital version to supplant the need to show uh, the film print. So uh, there was a lot of persuasion required as a result uh, in order to um, to get to that point, at least with uh, with some people. With one particular member. One person. And thankfully sure. her film is on it, um, which is great. And it looks fantastic. And um, so... Uh, it's basically just kind of a, a, an overview uh, of um, works from each member, uh, uh, ranging from um, from film to video, uh, to um, from you know very cinematic works to uh, works which are more. Uh, there's there's one uh, piece which is more of a documentation of a performance uh, that was done with uh, the artist's body in the film projection. Um, 
So it's kind of a, a hodgepodge that um, when we get out there, uh, we're having a book uh, released at the same time, roughly, and they're both going to correspond to the retrospective that's coming up on uh, at Jackman Hall on the 24th and 25th of March. Yeah. 2012. <laughs> and um, they're kind of companion pieces yeah. because there are statements by uh, yeah. by each member. So one involves artist statements on yeah. on on their their work, and then the other one provides an example of that. So uh, uh, we're hoping it'll be really great to um, be able to get that work out to other people. So you know, like we said, it's it's it it no longer becomes a thing of only being able to see. Um, your film Fugitive Light or Erica's film Paracutin or uh, Paracutin or um, you know one of my films or one of Kelly's films or even the video works uh, that are made by members of our collective who don't post their work online uh, for people who can who can look at it um, we can put it in libraries uh, people can take it more seriously maybe even um, think about it and decide to write something on it if they want to. Um, That's a hint. That would be, that would be nice. Uh, you know, as we said, so it can survive and, and so forth, but also just, you know, be able to go into people's homes and, and, um, and share and, and so forth. And uh, yeah, I mean, just, just kind of help to preserve it because um, unfortunately, uh, analog uh, gear is becoming scarce and uh, it's, it's hard oftentimes to project a uh, 16 millimeter and and a lot of people don't even know what the difference is so uh, in a way we kind of have to dance with the devil and, and and release stuff on DVD so that we can say okay now you've seen the DVD version of yeah. this 16 millimeter print now come to the screening and see the print and you'll see what the difference is. Well it's no different than doing reproductions of artworks in a book right and it's just it's about making it more accessible, and, and yes, we do want to bring them to uh, libraries, donate them, and mm -hmm. uh, um, and another aspect um, of our, in terms of accessibility, all our screenings have always been free. Um, it's it's been important to us to do that because um, making films is very expensive, or just and to go to these screenings too, um, so. We've always made it accessible in that sense. Um, I mean, we always accept donations, but we just, we would not want to prevent somebody from coming and seeing these films. Um, yeah.